That's it. Yeah, thank you. Woo! Yeah. I can't believe there's so many people here for this that I need a microphone. That's like... I don't think that's happened since I taught a 180-person lecture for Anthro 101. But I, I've been given a challenging task for the evening, answering the question that you guys uh, might have seen on the event, what kind of politics do we need today, with the description that uh, austerity, rising greenhouse gas emissions, and right-wing forces getting stronger make this a frightening time for radicals. We're under pressure to give up visions of liberation or to hold on to them in marginal isolation. What politics are best suited to winning struggles within capitalist society and ultimately moving beyond capitalism? And I just want to say, I don't know. <laughs> okay, there's a famous essay by a guy called Lenin titled, What is to be done? And he didn't know either entirely, okay? Though it is a great essay that we should all read. We don't know, I don't know, but we do know drawing on over 150 years of Marxist theory and of socialist activism and organizing, of working class struggle, we do know what to look for and how to find out what it is that is to be done and what kind of politics we need today. So I wanna outline a little bit of how we might do that and then give you some of my analysis based on that kind of method about where we are now and what I think we need to do. So crucial concept for thinking about how to find out what to do is this idea of class forces and a balance of class forces. This is often how Marxists will think about what situation we're in and how to look for the next steps and the next struggles and spaces that are, that are open to organizing and building power for the working class, advancing socialist ideas, and moving uh, beyond capitalism. It's a different analysis than the one we will often see on the news, whether we're, we're looking at sort of liberal news or Fox News or even some progressive kinds of, of publications. I don't think we have progressive television, but progressive publications. And a lot of the things that in those arenas are typically considered the cause of big social changes, Marxists often see as effect of deeper changes that are harder to see. They either might not be covered in the media at all, they might be considered assumed laws of economic structure, right? Or they just might be difficult, difficult to see because they take place over a longer period of time than we're used to dealing with in these kind of flash news cycles where every week on television and every six minutes on Twitter, right, there's a new issue in need of our attention, right? So sometimes a longer view can give you a little bit more information. And it's, it's often the case that these kinds of big social changes are not the result of policy, but of Marxists would consider the laws of capitalism. Capitalism requires specific things of individual people, but also of classes as a whole, right? And so things like that, I mean, if you wake up in the morning and you don't want to go to work, right, what do you do? You just like chill out at home? No, right? You go to work. Why? Because you have to pay rent, because you have to buy food, right? And so you make a lot of decisions on that basis, right? Capitalists and bosses make a lot of the same kinds of decisions about what they can and can't do, no matter what they might want to do, right? So we might think of differences between good and bad bosses, but fundamentally all bosses have the same set of decisions as each other in the same way that most working people have a limited set of choices. And those kinds of choices, the choice between, between workers and bosses, tend to come into conflict, to put it mildly. And this kind of conflict is often what I would see and what most Marxists would see as the real driving force behind the situation that we find ourselves in. That doesn't mean that the, the future is already set. It doesn't mean that there's just one direction that things could go in and there's nothing that anybody can do to change it. Completely on the contrary. The range of possibility is quite large and the thing that I think is most important in determining that right, is how organized and powerful working class people are and how organized and powerful the ruling class is. So that's what we're setting out to just assess when we talk about a balance of class forces. And right now I think there's actually, it's a moment of a very wide range of possibilities. There's a lot we can do to affect the outcome of the conflicts that exist in our society today. And so that's why I think there are so many people here who are trying to figure out what we should be doing right now, right? It feels like a moment where you should be taking some action. So. I'm going to describe what I think the moment is, but I want to give a little caveat about that, which is that what I'm going to talk about tonight is mostly, most of the details I'm going to use are from the United States, because that's where I'm from. It's what I'm familiar with enough to be able to give you 
really concrete examples about, but that doesn't mean I think the United States is the most important thing going in the world or the only thing we should be thinking about, totally on the contrary. I do think that the particulars are different, right, between the US and, and Canada and between the comparison between any two countries in the world. But at the same time, when you compare two countries, one thing you will often notice is that there are sort of eerily similar developments in different countries that don't have any obvious connection to each other, right? And that's one of the ways that we confirm the usefulness of this idea of, of class forces, that something like an orange-haired, brood, loudmouth, wealthy, semi-elected, minority-supported, uh, xenophobic, racist, misogynist president of the United States could exist in the United States and also exist in the UK, right, at the same time without them being friends or necessarily having planned that in any way, right? So that tells us there's some underlying similarity, and I think you will, we will start to notice, if we had all year, we could look at lots of different country situations and find that there's a lot of similarities like that tend to crop up. So I do think that there's, the, there's some important differences about the US that we should, we should keep in mind. One is that there we've had this kind of notable and new popularity of the word and the idea of socialism in the US. And it's one that is, is uh, to me, remains completely shocking and surprising and, and a wonderful development. When I was first becoming a radical, I remember thinking to myself that I was a socialist and that this would be a dangerous thing to reveal to anybody and that I, I wasn't sure if it even made sense to call yourself a socialist, even if you were one, because you would immediately lose the room and be violating one of the sort of most strong taboos. And now, you know, you have, have debates in the New York Times, debates on Fox News, debates on every form of mainstream media about socialism and what socialism is and isn't. And of course, that is partially the result of the second campaign of Bernie Sanders, the United States uh, presidency, and his declaration, right, that he is a socialist and that the kinds of reforms he's seeking are socialist. The other difference, I think, or the other kinds of differences, I think, between Canada and the U.S., as far as I understand the Canadian situation, you all know much more about it than I do, but that there's a lot of similarities, but they sort of are happening out of order and in different kinds of proportion, right? So in the U.S., for example, we've had a, a huge strike wave of teachers starting, uh, actually today is the second anniversary of the Wildcat beginning in West Virginia, and we've had teachers going on strike across the country since then. Probably over 100,000 teachers have been on strike. Thousands of them have been on strike illegally, right, making all kinds of demands. And I think we're starting to see a little of that action here in Canada, right? So that's good news. We also could compare the indigenous blockades against pipelines here in Canada that seem to be very big and growing and a site of possible radicalization for people not just in the ones and twos, but maybe in the in the 12s and, and 40s and maybe in the hundreds and maybe in the thousands, who knows? But we had a, a sort of more localized and intense version of that right in the United States with the North Dakota Access Pipeline protests a couple years back, right? So we can see that there's some similarities even if there's some differences. Here's what I think is going on. There's this word that gets thrown around a lot and it's just like, it's, it's risen to popularity out of the ghetto of the left and out of the ghetto of academia into discussion on Fox News and mainstream media and the New York Times along with socialism and that word is neoliberalism, okay? It gets used to describe a lot of different things. I think the most useful use of it is to think of it as a period of capitalism that has been characterized by a few different important features starting somewhere around 1975, okay? And the things that I think are neoliberal that are worth thinking about are the reorganization of work, right? This is when you started seeing many more workers having to live on two income families rather than one income family. You start seeing a steep decline in the membership of unions. You start seeing a, a long-term stagnation of wages while prices of literally everything else are rising, right? You start seeing increasing precarity in the way that people are asked to work. People are working for peace rate, people are working for very low wages at chaotic schedules and so forth. Those are all things that would typify neoliberalism. There are a few other things that do as well, but rather than delve into that, I just want to raise that idea because I would like to bring to you today that neoliberalism is over. It's dead, that period has ended, okay? This is a controversial idea that not certainly not all socialists in the United States would agree with, or maybe nobody would agree with, I don't know, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you why I think that's true. Neoliberalism is dead, but austerity is not dead, right? Cuts to public sector, the elimination of state supports for things like healthcare, like childcare, like welfare payments, right? And the increasing sort of barriers to people getting those things, subsidies for housing, that all remains. But capitalism and the ruling class has turned to direct forms of coercion, violence, and authoritarianism versus 
a kind of neoliberal hegemony that explained these cuts to social services, this decimation of working class organization as a kind of natural outcome of capitalism as fair, as reasonable, and as the sort of conditions that everybody understands are true, right? So the difference between neoliberalism and now, one major difference, I think, is people aren't buying it anymore, okay? And so that the responses had to be increasing limits on immigration, for example, right? As well as xenophobic explanations for why that might be the case, right? So that's why we, we have Donald Trump explaining how dangerous Mexicans are to Americans almost every day on Twitter, despite the fact that something like 75 or 80% of Americans, when polled, say they think immigration is a positive thing for the country. This is not sort of a rising out of a popular xenophobic consciousness in the United States, right? Although it will often be attributed that way, it is in fact a strategy, right, for managing the increasing discontent that working class people have with the conditions that they're living under. And it's obvious why people are discontented. There's a crisis for all of us. If you have been consistently paid $33,000 a year for your entire adult life, and the cost of groceries has gone up 65%, the cost of rent has gone up 65%, you're gonna be facing a crisis, right? That crisis, you can't pay your bills. And I think, you know, I am not alone in that. I know, you know, I know that you guys know that uh, I'm not alone in that. So that's one kind of crisis. There's a crisis of legitimacy, right? Of political legitimacy for that situation as a result of that social reproduction crisis. But there's an underlying crisis that is worth thinking about. That crisis is a crisis of profitability for businesses in the ruling class, right? And that is a recurring crisis in capitalism. That if we think there are laws of capitalism, this is something that is doomed to happen over and over again. We think about dramatic stock market crashes, right, that have happened, this is the cause of it. In fact, a previous crisis of profitability is what caused neoliberalism in the first place. Businesses were forced to extract more and more work out of workers for less and less pay as the only possible solution to that initial crisis of profitability. And now I think the reason neoliberalism is dead is because they've hit a wall on that strategy. There is no more to suck out of our reserve bank accounts. There is no more time to extract from us in terms of taking care of our families and going to work and doing our jobs. And so that is where this new crisis has emerged from. So if you grant me all that, if you go with me and you think that's possibly true, then I think it will give us a particular view of the kind of situation in the United States that sort of, on the one hand, we can say it's very exciting, right, that there are many new socialists and people are talking about socialism, people are talking about union organizing, people are talking about class politics, right? That is wonderful and exciting and great. But it's also a paradox because the way that socialism is understood does not necessarily respond, is not necessarily anti-capitalist for one, doesn't respond to the crisis, doesn't always respond to the crisis that's being presented to it, right? And it, it's worth thinking about what this kind of socialism, how it interacts with this underlying crisis or how it might interact with this underlying crisis. And so there are multiple different possibilities for that and I wanna think through them for a little bit. So just one little fact about it though that is quite shocking, 40% of people in the United States say they view socialism positively. And that's after months of red baiting on news of scaremongering about a socialist under your bed coming to eat your children. Nevertheless, people think that socialism sounds pretty good. And the younger you are, the more you think that, right? So the people who most want socialism, right, are the people who are even younger than me. Starting with so-called millennials, the people born in 1981, and moving on down, socialism is more and more popular. That's resulted in the largest organized left in the United States since the collapse of the Communist Party, which is saying something. Thousands of people have joined the Democratic Socialists of America, but at the same time, most of the pre-existing socialist organizations in the U.S. have more or less collapsed. So on the one hand, in about 2008, the subprime mortgage crisis crashed all the banks. That's when we really started seeing this new wave of class struggle, of radical consciousness develop, and it's also when we started seeing the collapse of existing socialist organizations. They've collapsed for all kinds of reasons, things like scandals around gender violence, but mostly they've, many of their members have gone into the Democratic Socialist America, and because many of these organizations really had no way of coming up with new answers to the new situation that they found themselves in. One of the things that happens when you're in a very small group is you end up saying the same thing to yourself over and over again, kind of no matter what happens, and acting as if you can absolutely predict 
the future. And when you can't, people leave, right? When you predict wrongly consistently, people no longer go along with you. So I do think the very first thing that I know about what we need to think about politically or what kind of politics we need is one that is open to changing its mind, one that's open to being corrected by new facts and information, even as much as we might stick to the methods that we've hopefully honed, beginning to hone over time. So that's one lesson. I'm not necessarily sure though that DSA as vibrant, and it really is a vibrant organization with a lot of different kinds of political tendencies in it, a lot of different kinds of organizing and activism happening in it, so I don't want to be out here criticizing DSA too much, but I'm not sure that it is, that there's evidence that, that it is right now the kind of organization that's open to thinking about new strategies and new ideas. And in fact, the more things heat up, the more socialism becomes popular, the closer we get to our election. And in fact, the more surprisingly successful that Bernie Sanders is in this election, I think the less open that comrades in the DSA are to rethinking their ideas. And that to me is one of the biggest dangers that I think we're going to find, that people who are attached to this idea of electing Bernie Sanders to put socialism into practice may be quite demoralized and disappointed if he loses, especially if he loses in the primary. They might be very disappointed if he loses because the Democratic Party center steals the election from him. And there's a third possibility of disappointment, which is that Bernie Sanders gets into office and is not able to enact the socialism that people imagine, right? And I think Canadian comrades might have a better idea about that. This is a situation where socialism was not as much of a dirty word as it was in the United States, and where you have an experience of social democratic parties winning power in various times and places. So that is one, I think, huge concern with what's going on in the DSA. The other thing about it is that while the entire country is moving to the left and talking about reforms and talking about revolution and talking about wildcats and class struggle and organizing, there's been a rightward shift within the DSA itself. So people who previously were major critics of the Democratic Party have sort of slowly over time become less and less critical and more and more attached to the idea that the task of socialists is to change and transform the Democratic Party into a working class party or even just into a, a party that can do a little more good for a few more people. In part, this is because for Bernie Sanders to win, it really is going to be a marginal victory if he is going to win. I think they're right that if Bernie Sanders is going to win, they need as many people, as many socialists as possible have to be in South Carolina campaigning for the primary. As many socialists as possible have to be in Nevada and in every kind of... There are people doing this right now, like literally going from week to week to each state where there's a primary or a caucus and campaigning for Bernie Sanders. But that does mean that those very same people are not doing other things. That includes things like running for local office. There are local socialist candidates in New York who are on the campaign trail campaigning for Bernie Sanders right now rather than on their own campaign trail. But it also means that people are not doing things like organizing in their workplace or organizing in their, their homes and in their tenants' unions. Like, I just went to a meeting of my own union on Wednesday, and I was asked by some friends and comrades of mine to present the position of adjunct professors at this meeting, and I looked around the room, and I was the only adjunct professor in the room. And this is the moment where we, we should be kicking off a contract enforcement campaign around our, our brand new contract. Um, but the reason I was the only uh, adjunct professor in the room is because all the other active adjunct professors were in South Carolina campaigning for Bernie. Um, <laughs> so on the one hand, I had my, my union chair telling us that we couldn't start our contract enforcement campaign right away because we had too much lobbying to do. We have to go to the uh, state and talk to our Democratic Party representatives and convince them to fully fund CUNY. Now, we've been lobbying Democrats in the New York State House to fully fund CUNY, that's the City University of New York, for, oh, since 1975, okay, when there was a giant fiscal collapse in New York City and CUNY was defunded. And it has never worked. They have not done it, okay? Thing is, it might work now. There's a better chance. Why? Is it because we suddenly got better at lobbying? No. Why? It's because there are thousands and thousands of teachers on strike threatening state governments, threatening city governments with disruption and action and embarrassment if they are not, if they don't put some more money into public education, right? We've actually seen more and more funding, more increases in funding in public education in the last two years since West Virginia teachers went on strike than in my entire lifetime previously in terms of just money. So that tells you something, right? Is that because we elected socialists who are putting laws on the books to fund education? No, it's not. It's because our politicians are starting to see which way the wind is blowing and they want to kind of head off trouble at the pass or they want to try to solve problems before they start. But it was very disappointing for me to sit in that room and look around and be like, oh, my analysis is completely correct and there's nobody here who cares to even see that that is true because they're all in South Carolina campaigning for Bernie.
So that doesn't mean I hate Bernie Sanders. I don't hate Bernie Sanders at all. Bernie Sanders is a graduate of Brooklyn College where I teach. He reminds me of a lot of people that I know. And when I see him get up and yell at billionaires, I feel really good. I really, I want to yell at billionaires too. I think he does a very good job of it. When I hear him say the word socialism, it feels really good. When I walk around Brooklyn, as I can do now, and actually walk in, there are now socialist bars in Brooklyn. If you told me that even five years ago, I would have completely laughed in your face. There are whole blocks where every, everybody who works in the bars and restaurants on that block are socialists, and most of the people who are hanging out in those bars and restaurants are socialists. The only time I'd ever heard of anything like that before is reading it in books, right, about historical places and, and histories of socialism. So it's very exciting to see that. So this is not Bash Bernie Day as far as I'm concerned at all. But let's say, and, and I also want to say, I've been wrong about Bernie so far. I haven't been right every time. I did correctly predict that he would lose last time, but I don't think that was a hard prediction. But I thought he would do about as well this time as he did last time. Now that sort of remains to be seen, although he did so very well in Las Vegas, in, in Nevada, that that was novel and I think has really raised a lot of people's hopes about where this campaign is going. But I'm willing to say I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if he's going to lose or win the primary. We do know that there's, there's really no option on the table besides Bernie. The Democratic Party and the ruling class have not centered on a candidate, right? There's not a single candidate that is in fact being presented as a, as a real credible alternative to Bernie and that makes it very hard for them to stop him using the, the official channels, right, which of course are totally decided by the Democratic Party, and it makes it increasingly likely that if he does win the, the votes in the primary, that the leaders, the, the so-called leaders, the rulers of the Democratic Party are going to be faced with the choice of openly stealing the election from him and replacing him with a candidate that they prefer, right, or somehow getting behind Bernie, this, this evil socialist that they've demonized as a yeller and a all kinds of mean, nasty things, getting behind him as their best case scenario. But even, let's move beyond that election a little bit. If Bernie wins, the President of the United States, if there's a President Bernie Sanders, that sounds like a science fiction novel to me, even today looking at the scenario that we face. But I, I have to admit that I do think it, there's, a there's a small possibility that that would take place. That's not unprecedented. There are countries in the world where this has happened many times, that a social democrat has been elected to be president of that country. And so it's worth thinking about what the limits have been on those kinds of governments, right? And when I say that something is a social democratic government and that Bernie Sanders is a social democrat, I mean something very specific by that. It's not an insult. What I mean is that he is a socialist, but he's a socialist who doesn't oppose capitalism. What he wants to do is to reform capitalism, to reduce the harm to people in the working class, to reduce the kind of the effects of fascist and racist violence, right, which are growing and problems, to reduce hunger and homelessness, to you know, and obviously to give us some kind of access to healthcare, which is completely pathetic that we don't have. But th that's his program, that's his idea, that's his goal. And what he wants to do is balance out this kind of recurring crisis that capitalism produces. But whether he wants to do that sincerely or not, and I do think he's very sincere about it. One thing you can say about Bernie Sanders is that he's been for the same thing since time immemorial. He's never been for anything different. I don't think he's lying to us at all. But the question is, can he put those, even those reforms into practice? Often this kind of politics around Bernie Sanders is presented within debates in the US left as being one of practical social democratic politics versus the wild and practical ultra left politics of literally anything else. And I, the first question about that is, is it practical? If Bernie is the president of the United States, will he be able to give us free college, healthcare, all this kind of stuff? Well, how? In the United States, you have to pass those things through Congress, right? And we know for a fact that he's not going to have a majority support in Congress, even if the Democrats win the majority of Congress. And that's not unique to Bernie Sanders. That was the problem that Barack Obama faced when he came into office. And Barack Obama's solution to that was to put through some policies by executive order. And this is what you will hear a lot of people uh, on the left in, in the United States talking about how socialism will be implemented under Bernie Sanders, that he will go in, and actually there's a list, you can read it on the Jacobin website, of all the executive orders that Bernie Sanders is going to put into place. Okay, so that's an interesting idea. Why not, right? Fuck it, like, if we can put socialism in through executive order, let's do it, right? I'm, I'm for that. But there's a couple of problems with it, unfortunately. One of them is that it doesn't work. We can look at the recent history of Barack Obama to see that, right? What happened when Trump came into office? Trump immediately repealed all of the executive, the progressive executive orders that Barack Obama had signed. So you can see that this, that kind of a, a program is very, is very fragile, 
right? So that's one thing. The other thing, I actually looked up Barack Obama's executive orders today to think about talking about this. And one thing is that most of them were in fact enacted to uh, expand US powers abroad and give the president more and more power to enact US imperialism around the world. That's not usually talked about, okay? And, and it's often talked about that he, one of the executive orders that was repealed was his order to close Guantanamo Bay, but he never closed Guantanamo Bay, even though Trump is the one that, that repealed that executive order. So whether executive orders can put into policy progressive policies or if they're only useful for putting in, into action regressive policies, I think remains an entirely open question or, yeah. So that's, that's one problem. The other problem is if social democracy includes democracy, I know, um, and if socialism includes democracy, if socialism for revolutionary socialists like myself is ruled by working class people, then I think we have to think about how that relates to the idea of putting executive orders into, into place even for, high, for reforms. We talked about what are the features of neoliberalism. One of the features of neoliberalism that you will see repeated in countries all over the world right, is an increasing centralization of power in the executive governments right, and decreasing power in the hands of legislative bodies, decreasing power in the hands of the judiciary, and often very limited choices for voters. The United States being one of the worst case examples of that. I've never lived in a state in the United States where my vote counted in a general national election, never. I grew up in Texas and I grew up in New York and we have the Electoral College, so my vote is a fait accompli whether I vote or not. So this whole, I'm sitting hours and hours debating about voting and it's completely abstract for my actual vote. So this idea of the concentration of executive authority, it's very important because it remains concentrated regardless of who the executive is. Barack Obama increased executive authority and then Trump took over an office with increased authority. If Bernie Sanders comes into office and then further increases executive authority, what will happen if the next president is not Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? What if the next president is instead, oh God love us, I don't even know who that would be. I don't know. No, it could be so much worse. I was gonna go with Gavin McGinnis as our next, next president. But we would find ourselves in a, oh, he can't be president then. I was gonna say thank you, but y'all sent him to Brooklyn. Unacceptable. So I don't actually think that's likely, but of course that is exactly the solution that the Democratic Party old school is proposing. What they're proposing, their preferred candidate of the moment anyway, is New York City's former mayor, Mike Bloomberg, and Mike Bloomberg, you know, I get, I've been criticized by uh, lots of people when I say this, like, or by liberal Democratic voters who support Mike Bloomberg, which, of which I'm not sure there are any sincere, actual fans. But anyway, that's, another, that's an entirely different point. But they get mad if you say that Bloomberg and Trump are the same. But the thing is, Mike Bloomberg says that Bloomberg and Trump are the same, and he says it all the time. He said it today on Twitter. He said the difference between him and Trump is that he is more effective. <laughs> Look it up, it's there, it's right there on Twitter, it's like about 3 p.m. I mean, that's terrifying, that's terrifying. Nowhere, nowhere, I mean, we're laughing, but nowhere does it say Mike Bloomberg is gonna roll back the detention camps for immigrants, where people are literally dying, they're being uh, left to, in disease-prone conditions without any kind of treatment, in fact, the refusal of treatment, people are being separated from their families. And this is not something that you have heard emanating from the Democratic Party debate stage, that there's anybody up there saying that their top priority, their first priority is to close immigrant detention camps. People are being disappeared out of those camps. There are, there are now thousands of missing people from literal concentration camps that are in the United States and we're out here debating about whether or not Mike Bloomberg is an appropriate president and, and about whether or not people are polite enough in their political debates. And I find that kind of shift to be frightening, even in, under conditions where it might be possible to elect, exciting conditions where it might be possible to elect a democratic socialist to be president of the United States. So looked at that way, if the possibilities are an ineffective Bernie Sanders, a second term of Trump, where we know he will be emboldened, or a more effective form of Trump, where not only will a Mike Bloomberg presidency be a more effective version of Trump, it would be a version of Trump that met much less resistance or much less criticism because the left is, is, remains very small in the US, the actual left. By that I mean anybody to the left of the Democratic Party. Before, in about 2008, I would estimate that the organized left in the United States was about 10,000 people. And I think despite the thousands of people that have joined DSA, if we're talking about the active, renewed, paid up membership of DSA and people that do literally anything, we're probably up to about 20,000 organized leftists in the United States. So this is 100% increase, but not uh, statistically relevant noticeable compared to the rest of the population. So most of the people who don't like Trump are regular old Democratic Party 
supporters. And those are the very same people who, when Obama was elected, figured everything was fine. And last time that happened, we had an anti-war movement before Barack Obama was elected, and we, we didn't have one afterwards. So I have some fear that what momentum we have could be lost under those conditions, and you'd have a situation where pretty much everybody, all the news media, all the major parties, agree that the new and horrible things that Donald Trump has brought to us are in fact normal and regular and an acceptable state of affairs. So this means our what is to be done is extremely, extremely urgent. Not just in the United States, but all over the world. I'm sure you all have noticed that we don't have winters anymore. I mean, you still do, as far as I'm concerned. But I hear it's very warm here. I'm sure that you've all noticed that large sections of the world are literally on fire, that the Amazonian rainforest in the Congo and the forests in Siberia were all on fire at the same time. Almost the, the entire continent of Australia was on fire. People were literally jumping off of Australia into the oceans. Okay, this is an extremely urgent aspect of the crisis. So if we think back to that question of whether or not Bernie Sanders could implement something as simple as free college education or healthcare for all, what does that mean about whether he could implement meaningful full response to climate change at the level of the United States policy? It doesn't look good. Does that mean that I think we can't do anything about climate change? Absolutely not. I do think we can and we have to. But I think that we have to do that by thinking about politics in a totally different way. And what I mean by that is Usually when people talk about politics, they mean elections, they mean let's fight out the issues. And when Marxists talk about politics, we talk about political economy. And we talk about things that, are, that go beyond that level of formal electoral politics. And I think because of the urgency, the area outside of formal debate is even more important than it has been in, in my lifetime, certainly. And because of the limits on what democracy actually allows for in the United States, certainly in the United States, but I think increasingly all over the world, more political activity has to take place outside of that elect framework. Otherwise, I just don't think that we're going to be able to get anything done. There's good news. The good news is that that's already happening in lots of ways, right? And it's something that we've seen develop since about, since I would say about 2008, this particular wave of struggle. One of the other ways that we figure out how to do what is to be done or what it, what it is that is to be done is to see what is being done and what are the lessons that have been learned over these this wave of struggle. Movements come and go and they ebb and flow, but we are seeing sort of increasing bumps of these social movements. And with each one, I think you can start to see new levels of politics and new kinds of demands emanating out of these movements, which point us in a particular direction. So by talking about movement, you know, it's, it's one thing to say abstractly movements, but I'm going to talk about them concretely. If you think about Barack Obama's campaign, which was presented as a kind of radical a campaign for radical change, and many people bought into that. It's hard to imagine now, because it sounds so bullshit, but at the time, people really did believe it, that we were gonna hope and change, right, to a new and different kind of kind of country. And people, I think, there were many people, I think, who were very disappointed by that experience. And many of those people were the people that started the Occupy movement in New York, that spread all over the country into many parts of the world. And that movement, was the first place I heard in the mainstream media people talking about class and inequality in a very concrete way. And the, the slogan, of course, of Occupy was the 99%, right? Everybody but the billionaires, kind of a, a version of class politics. But people also talked about the strike. There was a call for general strikes coming out of Occupy. Now, those were totally ineffective. I actually had somebody who was an Occupy organizer ask me because they knew me as somebody who was involved in the labor movement. Kate, can you organize a general strike for March 16th? And I was like... No. No, I can't, right? And people's idea of how to organize a general strike was to stand with flyers that said strike at subway entrances. And we're laughing, right? Because it's, it's really silly. But what's exciting is that many people know much better now how to do those things. And they've learned it through the course of these struggles, right? And the demands have developed through the course of these struggles. So now instead of the 99%, we hear people talking about the working class, right? We actually hear people talking about the working class. We saw another really big, I think, important development was the emergence of Black Lives Matter as a nationwide social movement. The slogan itself seems, I mean, I'm, I'm very much for it, but it almost seems insulting, like Black Lives Matter shouldn't be where we're at, obviously. It doesn't sound like a super radical slogan. We should be, compared to black power, for example, as the last kind of big wave of black liberation struggle, those are very different kinds of slogans. But what was so interesting about this movement is that what it, I mean, there are many interesting things about it, but two that I'm gonna bring up. One is that it, it, did, a lot, it did direct action, and that direct action worked. People did blockades and streets and highways for demands about 
police accountability, and you have seen police, in some cases, prosecuted, many more than zero that were prosecuted before Black Lives Matter. You have seen at least declarations of police reform. There's a huge debate right now about Mike Bloomberg's stop and frisk. I lived in New York when that was going on. And the weirdest thing about the debate is that people are pretending it's not still happening. Just because it's been outlawed by the New York Supreme Court does not mean stop and frisk is in fact over in New York State. So that's kind of the weird distortion when we divide politics out from what our actual lived experience is. But what Black Lives Matter brought to people and, and learned for collectively is that representation doesn't solve the problems of most working class people. It was extremely exciting to elect a black president of the United States of America. Imagine telling anybody at any point in history that that was on its way, and I think many of them would have looked at you like you had 16 heads. That sounds impossible, let alone a black president named Barack Hussein Obama, okay? And for me, that the representation is huge. I'm an anthropologist, and my daughter is African and was, was born in Africa when I lived there. So Barack Obama is the son of a white anthropologist who was married to a, a black African man. So right, the representation, and my daughter's name is Tendai. So you know, all of a sudden, Barack Obama's elected, and my my child now has never lived in a world where she couldn't be president of the United States, and that felt big. But what it didn't do was anything else. It didn't. <laughs> It didn't keep the police from killing hundreds of people a year, most of whom are black. It didn't keep, it didn't get any, a, a single black person out of prison. It didn't close any pay gaps and it didn't stop people from discriminating against people on the basis of race and hiring, right? It didn't solve the, the, the problem of racial segregation in housing and the wealth differences that that's created over time. And people know that, people know that. And you can see that even in the worst parts of the mainstream electoral process in the US right now. When you call for representation just doesn't feel that important or powerful or strong. It's not just that Hillary Clinton was a terrible candidate, although she was. It's that the idea of having the first woman president no longer had the same kind of compelling, made the same kind of compelling argument to people. People looked at this and thought, well, if Hillary Clinton is gonna do for women what Barack Obama did for black people, we might as well go shopping on election day then, you know, as go, go and vote. And I do think that was a serious problem, or serious real reaction to it. And that's, I think, a good thing, that people know that. And I think it's, it's one of the ways that politics and political debate and the US have come to be sharper. The other things that we've learned is that strikes work which is fucking incredible. I've been wandering around telling people that strikes work for like 15 years and not a single one of them listened to me, but all of a sudden people are starting to know this. And that, that was something that was taught to us in a couple of different ways. One was the day without an immigrant in 2006. Thousands of immigrants didn't go to work or school. And it was, it was the biggest strike action of any kind in the US for, I don't know, since I'm too diggity. And then what happened was, West Virginia teachers and Chicago teachers went on strike and won things. And they won things not just for themselves, this is very important, but they won things for everybody else. The West Virginia teachers strike one to five percent raise for every public sector worker in West Virginia, even though most of the public sector didn't go on strike. This, and then people have learned from that. Immediately people learn from that. Immediately, and you could see it happening even on social media, Oklahoma teachers decided they wanted to go on strike. And their opening demand was we want full, full funding of public education. Their opening demand wasn't we want a 5% raise. And those demands have, have developed. In California, teachers have gone on strike to demand the non-closure of schools. They've gone on strike to demand the elimination and reduction of charter schools, which has, charters have gone from being a bipartisan consensus about everything that is good in the world to now a highly controversial topic and people, politicians no, want, no longer want to admit publicly that they are in favor of charter schools. That's a big change. In Chicago, most recently, teachers went on strike and failed to achieve, but they went on strike for public housing for all their students. What a huge demand. What an incredible demand. And by any account that you could have looked at from even just two years ago, the Chicago teachers' strike of the last time won. They won raises, they won certain kinds of job protections, but they, they didn't win their demand for housing, they didn't win their demand for reduction of class sizes, and a lot of the people who participated in that strike now feel like they lost. It was because they really wanted to win the housing and they thought they would. That is a huge shift in how people think about what is possible and what they can actually personally achieve. Not individually, of course, but personally, collectively, what we can achieve. What I thought was, what I think is good about that is that at least most of the people that I, ha I have talked to or seen talking about this who are Chicago teachers, even the ones who are disappointed, 
answer to that is that they should have stayed on strike longer. And that is a lesson that is important to learn. If your strike doesn't work, sometimes that doesn't mean your strikes don't work. Sometimes it means you didn't strike harder, you didn't strike longer. And so that's an interesting lesson that's been learned. The other one that's been learned, I think, is feminism, right? The other big strikes that have happened, less so in the US, but around the world, right, are feminist strikes that have been called and turned into general strikes, right, in many, many countries in the world. Winning demand, winning things like legal abortion in Ireland, winning things like the protection of abortion in Poland. And defining feminism, defining feminism in a new way against boss feminism, against kind of Hillary Clinton representational, top-down, me-only success. Instead, feminism is defined as something that is broad, that everybody has to participate in to work, and that takes place in the form of a strike, okay? That's, that is a new and exciting development that people learn. Within those movements, I think we're also seeing development of demands that I think I'm getting to a point that are very central for all of us for thinking about what kind of politics we need today. So when I say I don't know what kind of politics we need today, what I mean is that we have to look and see what kind of politics are working class people who are organized and active and making demands what are they demanding? Because that's the kind of politics that we need to be had to look for today. That's the kind of, that is the condition of possibility of achieving any new kind of politics. So within that feminist movement, there are four major planks, and you can see that they've, they've come from the ones that I've been blabbing about before, that are the site of intense debate within the feminist movement, and not coincidentally, they're also the site of debate within the socialist movement of the United States about how we should deal with the election and with other kinds of socialist politics right now. And so those four points are, one, the unconditional support of trans people's rights, okay? The recognition of people's genders, the use of people's names, full access to public services and public space, free, you know, freedom from violence. All of those aspects of trans rights are central to that, the most advanced politics that's going on. And of course, access to trans-related healthcare and healthcare in general. And what's so interesting about that to me in relation to the broader question of socialist politics is, of course, healthcare is the big issue for everybody. But when you ask for healthcare that's specific to trans people, what you're saying is that we don't just want budget healthcare. We don't just want limited, better than nothing, give me a pill and a patch and send me back to work healthcare. We want healthcare that produces us as we wish to be. We want the healthcare that lets us live our best lives and fulfill our deepest sense of selves. That's what that demand says, and I think that's a really transformative and important demand. So that's one. Two is solidarity with Palestine. And this is something that also used to be a very tabooed subject on, on the US left. I remember whole meetings walking out, if you even raised the question of solidarity with Palestine. And now this is so much more mainstream than it's ever been. Bernie Sanders, of course, is a Zionist and supports the existence of the Israeli state as a state defined by religious nationalism. But he got on stage in a presidential debate in the United States and said that Bibi Netanyahu is a racist and that Israel is a racist state. Now, if you told me that that would have happened three years ago, you could have knocked me over with a, with a feather. That was, that was shocking. And he said it in response to a really bizarre and anti-Semitic question that was about Bernie, Bernie Sanders, how does being Jewish relate to your politics? Shouldn't you support Israel? And that's what he answered back with, and he used the words Palestinian struggle. So that to me was a signal of a different kind of moment. The third one is internationalism and borders. So this is the one that you'll see a big set of debates about. This is again one of those questions that gets called practical versus impractical. If you're for open borders, for the free movement of human beings across borders, which I am, you'll get told that this is impractical for all kinds of reasons. You're going to facilitate pandemics, you're gonna let criminals into your country, you're going to cause people to lose their jobs in competition with immigrants. That's not true, by the way. I'm not gonna bore you with why that's not true, but it is not true, and if you wanna know, we can talk about it after this. And you have socialists defending things like immigration restrictions on the basis of national origin and the like really toxic, awful things that re repeat some of the worst moments of US history. But the fact that that became a central plank of the feminist movement, the mass feminist movement, by that I mean like the Women's March, was a really interesting development, or a big fight within the Women's March was an interesting development. And the last one is a racialized state violence, that the police shouldn't be murdering people. And that sounds pretty simple. It seems pretty simple for most of the countries in the rest of the world. I don't know why I do know why. But anyway, <laughs> it's depressing. I don't want to talk about it. But anyway, that is a really important demand. And you can see it spreading across to other parts of uh, the working class movement and the left. So things like not having police officers unions in the broader labor movement have become actual issues of debate. That seems very important. You even see it in, uh, this year in New York, we had World Pride. 
uh, to the celebration of the 50th anniversary of Pride and, and the Stonewall Rebellion. And so, you know, I think it was like a million people came to New York to celebrate Pride this year. And it, it was, as has been usual of late, a corporate affair uh, backed by, I don't know, every beer company under the sun and every bank and God knows what else, which is depressing as hell. But it also had, notably, 45,000 people marching uptown in mass formation against Pride. Now, were these reactionary homophobes? No, no, it was led by black queer people and particularly by trans people, right, to reclaim the history of Stonewall as a radical struggle, as a direct action, and as an anti-police riot, okay? So the demands of that reclaimed Pride March were exactly the same ones I just listed for you. It was a march that was anti-cop, pro-Palestine, pro-trans, pro-sex work, and pro-open borders. So I think that is, a, that is an interesting confirmation of what I'm, what I'm arguing about the kinds of lessons that our movement has learned and where I think we can go. I have more hopeful things to say about that, and I'm gonna close on them, so I'm not gonna leave you with depressing shit, but we have to go back to the depressing shit for just one last second, because we gotta think about what to do about Grandpa Bertie. Um, you know, I don't think we, it doesn't make any sense to get up and, and, and shout, I'm a revolutionary socialist, Grandpa Bernie, stop running for president. I don't think that will work. I think we can we can look back and say what might what else might we have done, and that's interesting. But that doesn't give us the answer of what we should do right now. Hmm. So the answer that people come up with is, well, Kate, I know you're worried about this whole union stuff falling by the wayside while everybody goes off to South Carolina, but we can do both. You're just cynical. We, you just think we can't do both, but we can, and we're going to, right? Bernie's going to help us build a working class organization. And he and the other thing that he's going to do, this is the, the argument for him, is that he's raising class consciousness. Now it's worth thinking about for a minute, what is class consciousness? If we think about how it gets raised and, and what, what does it mean? Sort of classically, the way that this can be talked about in the shorthand is that the working class exists in a society that is class. Anybody who is a worker, who has to work to make a living and doesn't own anything that will feed them or clothe them or house them, right? That person is a worker and the people that do own all that shit are bosses and capitalists. Okay, but that is not the same thing as the class for itself. An actual working class that sees itself as a class and is capable of acting collectively as a class in its own self-interest. So, class consciousness is the difference between those two things. Class consciousness is that collective idea that we are all part of the same class and that we're gonna work together to rule society and to liberate ourselves. So, Bernie Sanders is raising class consciousness. I actually think it is, I think it's true, I think he is, to a certain extent. I think it's hard not to see that happening when he's up on stage and he's, he said, he's telling Mike Bloomberg that he hasn't worked a day in his life. I think I've repeated that like 45 times since he said that, because it's very true. And just using the word socialism raised people's expectations and ideas. But it's not, my worry about this is that if the main way that an individual person's sense of class consciousness or sense of radicalism or sense of empowerment has been activated is by watching Bernie Sanders do things, that is a very fragile sense of radicalism, class consciousness, and activation. That, at the first moment of frustration or failure, might be more, might be easily turned in another direction or be swayed by an explanation of that particular failure of socialism. We compare the idea of people learning and developing new demands, honing techniques, coming to agreements about what our shared priorities and struggle are through movements. None of that happens in an election. And there's no protective layer of people who disagree with Fox News and MSNBC to talk to you about what our failures are and why they happen and what we might do differently in the future. And I do think that's a very serious danger if it's true that a significant number of people whose expectations are being raised, that that has primarily happened through Bernie Sanders or watching Bernie Sanders at work. Because the alternative isn't just the status quo. We are in a moment of crisis that we described earlier today. The alternative in these moments of crisis has often been described as socialism or barbarism. Barbarism in that context, when Rosa Luxemburg put it out there, she didn't mean like pre-colonial indigenous societies. You know, she didn't mean communism that existed before capitalism ever showed up. What she meant was, what people meant by that was is fascism and the full elimination of basic kinds of capacities and rights, like the right to more or less having the right to free speech, the right to association, the right to strike, and those kinds of things. So I don't think we're there yet, but I do think that that's the concern if we're talking about a kind of fragile sense of radicalization and a fragile class consciousness versus one that is built through uh, organizing and struggle. 
And so I'm very worried that we can't do both. And I'm very worried that we're not doing both. That's my worry. That's the depressing part. We got through it. But I think that brings us to our answer about what is to be done in this moment, at least for us in the United States. For you, I think the answer will be very similar to this, but with a different kind of shell wrapped around it. In the US, we have to do both, okay? I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna be able to stop people from working to elect Bernie Sanders. I'm not gonna be able to stop people from canvassing for Bernie Sanders. I don't necessarily even want to stop people from canvassing for Bernie Sanders. What I want to do is engage First of all, the problems that I think this produces, to be able to warn people about what the possible downsides are, and to build the kinds of organizations that we will need under any of the three possible conditions that are gonna come out of this election. So first, when I'm talking about engaging, I think the first thing is to engage in a kind of politics of hope and transformation, rather than a politics of practical compromise in advance of, advance of the conflict. I do think elections tend to push us toward the politics of practical compromise and lowest common denominator. And there's a structural reason for that. It's not because people are bad socialists or crappy sellouts. It's because when you're working for an election, what do you have to do? You have to go out and get people to vote. So what is the main activity of that? Canvassing. Canvassing is knocking on doors, talking to strangers, convincing them through a very brief speech about the rightness of your idea to vote for Bernie Sanders. And it really doesn't matter whether or not you make an actually good argument for it. What it matters is if you make an argument that will get the person to do that thing. And you don't have a lot of time. You're not, you can't stand up here like I did and blab at you guys for hours on end about neoliberalism and class forces and uh, the working class in itself and for itself. You have to get out there and say, Bernie Sanders is going to raise taxes on the rich and he's going to give you free health care. Okay? And that's fine. That's fine. That's fine for what it does. But it's just what it doesn't do. What it does do is it also requires you to build a coalition that can win. If you're going to win an election, you have to get the most votes. You don't have time to wait around for everybody to start agreeing that trans women are women and Palestinians deserve liberation. You can't wait around for people to decide that the police are actually not that great. So you need to make a coalition with the people that don't think all those things, okay? And I'm not out here telling us that we should never talk to people with bad ideas. On the contrary, we should always be talking to people with bad ideas. There's a difference between talking to people with bad ideas in a way that challenges their bad ideas, brings them into relationships with people who will influence their ideas, brings them into shared struggle with people who, whose existence may challenge their ideas, and whose own practice of solidarity might challenge people's ideas. That, there's a difference between that and saying Joe Rogan is a working class hero, which is a thing that I actually have heard people say in response to this. And it really is the difference between thinking about what is the minimum amount that we can accomplish and what is not just the maximum amount we can accomplish, but what is it that we need? And I think we really have to start, if we're trying to answer what, what is to be done, we have to start with what do we need, okay? And we need so much more than Medicare for all. We need so much more than Joe Rogan, right? He, I think people are right that Joe Rogan is an answer to the kinds of questions that people have. He's a wrong answer. He's the wrong answer, okay? But he is an answer, and he does express some of the kinds of frustrations that people have. So what do we need to do instead? I know you guys were all here waiting for me to tell you that answer. Here we go. I bet you already know the answer. We've walked the struggle together, and now we've all collectively come to a conclusion. So you already know what I'm going to say. But what I'm going to say is that we need to think about a few important facts generated from a, from a last question in the what is format, which is, what can we do? That feels like a much smaller question. That's a kind of deflating question, what can we do? The left is small. The left is disorganized. Relative to many parts of history, the working class is extremely disorganized as well. So when we think about what can we do, that feels like a very depressing question, but I'm here to tell you that it's not a depressing question. Because of all the hopeful signs that I've, we've talked about before, when we do these things, I think it is very likely that they will produce much bigger results than we might even imagine. In a way where you might do these exact same things 10 years ago and literally nothing happened, I think we're in a situation where taking the right steps will produce bigger results than we might have any reason to expect. I can tell you right now, I definitely did not expect all of y'all to be here tonight, so that's just one example. I was here, what was it, one year ago? Oh, shit, I'm getting so old. Two years ago, but anyway, all y'all weren't here, so um, that's one thing. But, and it sounds like a really simple thing, but the first and most important step is to build relationships with other people. That is the very first thing that, that we can have to do, and by that I mean, it's not a one-off conversation. It's not knocking on somebody's door and convincing them to do something. It's actually going out and finding out who are my neighbors? Who are the other adjuncts that work in my department? Who are the people that work on the other floor of my building? What kind of job do they do? But also, what do they think? Where do they live? What are their problems? 
and giving a shit about that, thinking about what you can do in relationship to those things. That sounds little and small and silly, I know. It really truly isn't. The other thing I think that can come out of that that's very important and extremely urgent. I didn't go in on the rising tide of fascism. That seemed just too depressing, I have to tell you, but there is a plan, okay? And I know that you all know that. There are countries all over the world right now with presidents who are explicit or just by definition fascist. Now, it doesn't mean that they're all now consolidated fascist societies, but it does mean we're in deep shit, okay? We also have a situation where, uh, you know, there's a lot of fascist terrorist violence is, that's going on and, and that's happening in increasing numbers and amounts. I thought it was very exciting that Joe Biden recognized that fact on the presidential debate stage. The gun control debate suddenly became about whether or not to punch Nazis and I was like, when did that happen? So that is very good. But Joe Biden isn't going to do anything to protect anybody from vigilante fascists. He's not going to do anything to protect anybody from ICE raids. In Brooklyn, last week before last, a totally random person was shot in the face in their own home by ICE raiding an apartment not very far from where I live, okay? ICE has become increasingly detached from any kind of political control by the government, or at least that's the way it imagines itself and presents itself. It's an extreme and present danger. So what can we do about that? We can defend each other, and this is something that really really can happen, is very practical, and is underway. In Chicago, there's an alderman, alderwoman, alderhuman, who's a socialist, Rosanna Rodriguez. There are several socialist aldermen, but I'm going to talk about Rosanna because she's my favorite. And one of the things that she did, along with Carlos Rosa, is organize in their neighborhoods to set up self-defense networks to defend people from ice raids. Okay, both of, both of the districts that they're in are heavily immigrant, right? But keep in mind, most of the people who are voting for them are not going to be the people that ICE is coming for, kind of by definition. So they're not, one of the things that they're doing, right, is expanding politics beyond elections and the vote, thinking of people who can't vote as their constituents. And so they got people in all over their, their districts to sign up and say that if they got a call, they would come out and defend people against ICE. And they have done that. I don't know if you guys saw in Chicago, but there was a child that was being held at the airport for their mother to come pick them up. The mother was an undocumented person and it was a trap to arrest their mother, but of course the child wasn't going to be allowed to be released to anybody but the mother. And what happened? Rosanna and uh, people from her district and then more and more people came to defend this child and to force ICE to release the child to their mother and that's what happened, okay? This is also one of the other big parts of learning that took place in the movement. Right after Donald Trump got elected and declared that we were going to block all sorts of people from coming into the country and hold people in airports, what happened? People spontaneously got up and went to the airport. It's an incredible thing to see and that happened all over the country as a direct action tactic and it was one that was partially effective, right? But what was even more effective was that people knew they could do that. So defend each other. I think that's an, the next most important principle that we can think about. I got another boring one for you. It's going to sound really little and rinky-dink, but it's really not. I'm going to use this phrase. Just hold your horses. Leadership development. Okay, sorry. I know I sounded like HR person right there, but I don't mean it that way. Okay, what I mean is... What I mean is, if we are socialists who support democracy and the rule by most people of our own lives and our own society, then we all have to be leaders, right? And there's a lot of things that go into that. One of those things is, is study groups. I know that also sounds extremely boring. If, if we have more study groups, then I can drone on less and less at people, and you all can drone on more and more at me, and that, that's, that sounds like a perfect vision of social... No, just kidding. <laughs> so, but that's one thing, right? But also building our confidence. Sure, confidence to speak publicly, confidence to approach people, confidence to ask other people to do things, ask other people to defend you, ask other people to defend other people, ask people to take risks. These are all forms of confidence that we need to have, right? We need to have individual confidence that is for our collective confidence and the other way around. The more we are collective, we are confident in our collective activities, the more individually confident we're all gonna be. The more you know that people are gonna defend you, the better able you are to go out in the world and try shit that might be a little bit risky. So that's the idea. So we need to develop each other and ourselves as leaders. Um, and that does mean, be, I think, being a little humane to each other in a way that isn't usually promoted at work or in school and often not on the left as well. Often when people want to get in these debates on the left, it's all about point scoring and who's evil and all this kind of stuff. And it's, it's the opposite of a kind of solidarity or confidence building way of, way of engaging each other. I do think we can and should have very sharp debates. I, I don't think we avoid conflict by avoiding debate, but I do think we come up with our best ideas and we move in the direction of what we're supposed to be doing by 
sharing those ideas with each other, having a comradely debate, and figuring out when we've been right and when we've been wrong and where we go from here. So that's the next most important thing that we can do. The next one, I think, is we have to build organization. We have to build working class organization. We did our little bit of historicization of this. Neoliberalism saw the destruction of almost all kinds and forms of working class organization that existed previous to it. That is a very dangerous and scary thing. We're seeing people building working class organization right now, though. What do I mean by that? Do I just mean unions in your workplace? You're thinking to yourself, I work in a place that doesn't have a union, and I don't know how to start building a union, and Kate, you've given me too hard of a job, and now I'm going home, and I'm not talking to you anymore. No, there are all kinds of working class organizations. When I say, where are we? What I mean is, literally, where are you, like, in your life? that you might be able to build an organization that would be useful and practical in that moment. So we're talking about organizations to defend people in their homes from violence, certainly, but also from evictions. We're talking about building organizations to defend people at work. It's, even if you can't build a union, you might be able to, to start by building a solidarity network, right? We've seen this happen in lots of different places that if I can get six of my friends to go campaign in front of Joe's Coffee House that just fired Maria for being late, we can shame Coffee Joe into hiring Maria back and let him know that he's not going to get away with this bullshit anymore. And that does work. That has worked. And it's one of the things that I think we're seeing work in lots of different places. So that's that's a, that's a kind of working class organization that we can that we can build and sustain. We also have to build our, our, our movement organizations, right? That take up these kinds of specific, concrete uh, demands that are like at that horizon and that edge of not just what do we think is possible right now, but what do we need? So we need to be in organizations with other people who are focused on climate justice. We need to be in other organizations with people who are focused on queer and feminist issues, decolonization, you know, and reducing racist state terror, or combating, I would say combating, let's say combating racist state terror instead of reducing, reducing. let's eliminate racist state terror. I think we could live in a universe where that never ever happened again, and we should. So those are the kinds of, of organizations that we need. And we want people who aren't yet socialists or who have strange ideas about what socialism is to be in those organizations with us. Whether or not they're on their way to becoming socialists, right, people can be activists against climate disaster. Um, so those are the kinds of organizations that we need. I'm also going to tell you that we need to have socialist organizations, and we need to have them now. And the reason that I think this, this is counterintuitive to a lot of people, a lot of people, in fact, the first time I ever went to a meeting of a socialist organization, I literally thought, why do I need this organization? Why is this here? What is the point of this? I met a lot of nice people. I learned a lot of interesting things. And I thought, what is this for? Okay? And I don't think it's self-evident what it's for. But that doesn't mean it's not for anything. What it's for is an organized way of developing ourselves as leaders in the way that I just talked about. It's a place where you can, where we can self-educate each other. That's one of its important functions. The other thing is it's a place where you potentially have the ability to talk about different kinds of struggles that are, people are participating in. So if I'm in my tenants union over in Sunset Park and somebody else is in a workplace struggle in Flatbush, we're gonna be able to share our experiences in the context of a socialist organization with a shared horizon in a way that can't happen almost anywhere else. And ideally, this is something, that idea is something that could be reproduced at a much higher degrees of scale. So shared lessons across workplace organizing, shared lessons across direct action organizing, shared lessons across housing rights and so forth. But there's even more reasons that people should have social organizations. They're not just uh, vehicles for becoming better activists, okay, although they are also that. They're also vehicles for thinking about what that next horizon is and building networks of people who might be able to put it in practice. So if you think about the one of the effects of that big uh, crisis of capitalism, that crisis of reproduction that we started the evening with, that big black hole crisis, one of the effects of that, right, is that there is a leadership vacuum. Certainly in the United States there's a leadership vacuum. If you look at the Democratic Party debate stage, who up there is a shiny example of leadership that people want to jump behind besides Bernie Sanders? I mean, Joe Biden, like he literally forgets his name multiple times a week. I don't say that to be mean to people with bad memories. I am one of those people, but I just mean he's not a very compelling confidence-inspiring figure, and on top of that, he's a racist, sexist old fool. You know, we have Bloomberg, whose slogan is apparently, I'm not a socialist, bring in the boss. <laughs> really, that's real, that's real, bring in the boss. Didn't we just bring in the boss in 2016? Pretty sure we did, okay. So you're fired guy, that, that hasn't gone that well, okay. Yeah, so anyway, I could go through the whole list, but I don't find them to be particularly 
compelling. So we have to build the kind of organization that where we can be able to see each other and not just each other in this room in one in one city or one town or one country, but uh, our leaders, our leadership is all over the world. And we don't know many of those people right now. But there are people like us in every single city in the world right now, I promise you, thinking about the question of what is it that we need to do and how can we figure it out. Okay, so we need to be in a, I don't know, chat discord? We need a discord. I don't know, we need something, some way, where we are able to all talk to each other about what our experiences of that trying to get there is across the board. Because we've already learned a lot. We've, you know, we went down the list of what it is that we've learned so far already. But imagine if we could be learning from people in South Africa. Well, imagine if we could learn from people in Chile how they went from jumping the turnstile to shutting the entire fucking country down for two weeks. Imagine if we could figure out from folks in France how they learned uh, to chase the president out of the city, right, and shut everything literally down for six weeks and roll back huge cuts to their cuts to their pension. So those are the lessons that I, I want to know. You know, I know what I read in the newspaper, but the newspaper doesn't tell me the things that I need to know about how to, what to look for, to find out where the points of possibility are. But just like there's that similarity between, that sort of uncanny similarity between orange here, fascists, there's also uncanny similarities between what happens among us. What kinds of things are the points of activation activity? What kinds of people are the people who are most ready to get to organize? What kinds of people are the most ready to take risks and take action? So the more that we know about that um, from everybody around the world, the faster, right? And the more effective we will be at building a leadership. This is a scary idea. I started very small, almost insultingly small, and I've now ended at what we need is to build a leadership, right? To replace the people that think of themselves as leaders of the world right now. We have to replace them. We have to replace them. And we have to do it soon. So that is what is to be done, I think. The important part that I want to I want us to think about that is that sounds too impossible to you. Is one, I have every confidence in you and myself that we can do that. But two, uh, it's it really is just like going to the gym, which I knew about in about, I, I knew about going to the gym in about 2002, I don't know now, but what I recall is that if you go to the gym and you do the same thing over and over again, you're flexing your muscle, right? When you flex that muscle, it gets bigger. That is also true of organization, working class organization, socialist organization, and the lessons of what works and doesn't work. You have to do it, right, for it to get bigger, better, better, and stronger. And it, I, I hear going to the gym feels good after a while. I vaguely remember that, but I think it would feel pretty good to flex that kind of muscle of socialism and that muscle of working class power. So that's where I'm going to leave it. I think the last thing is back to that sort of very small scale that each and each of us have to be looking for and talking to each other about what are the signs and sparks, right, of little moments where things might be uh, a place you can you can intervene to show somebody support or to encourage somebody's good idea. Right, or to build a relationship, or to bring people into an organization, or a room, or a conversation that they either felt excluded from before, or just had no idea what was happening, right? And that's, that's it. That's just, it's just, we just have to put one, one foot in front of the other and, and head in that direction. So I, I will see you when we get there, or maybe I'll see you again in two years in Winnipeg, but hopefully that time, I don't know where we're going. Who knows where we'll be? Maybe, yeah, who knows? Um, I look forward to finding out the answer to that. And thank you guys for, for bearing with me through this long travail of class forces and historical materialism and neoliberalism and Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders and uh, social chauvinism and um, all, all the kinds of uh, steps that we've taken along the way. I uh, greatly appreciate your attention and I'm really glad that I got to be here with you guys tonight. So thanks.